clowns. Like their archetypal cousins, the fool, the trickster, and the jester, the clown is a sacred dissident, if you will, an honored and seemingly benign transgressor playfully defying our conceptions of appropriate behavior. The clown invites you to relax your grip on the socially constructed self and embrace the chaos that lies beyond the carefully maintained predictability of your life. It is the clown's presumable ignorance of his own power to dissolve boundaries that once made him such a beguiling and innocuous figure. And while there are still those today who remember and try to preserve the special magic of the clown, recent decades have seen a more disturbing image take hold in the popular imagination. For all too many of us, the superimposed smile painted on his face belies a potentially more sinister set of intentions lurking behind his jovial appearance. But while depictions of evil clowns can be found dating back centuries, there is one real-life person who can be credited more than any other with the clown's fall into disrepute. And his name is John Wayne Gacy. Kyle, and this is Killer Cosmos. We're looking at John Wayne Gacy's birth chart this week, and I will warn everybody in advance, this one is uh, uncomfortable, it gets pretty dark, and, you know, pretty rapey. So, if you're particularly sensitive, you may want to skip this one. But for the rest of us who just can't help ourselves, we're going to jump right in. John Wayne Gacy was born March 17, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois at 12.29 a.m. The parents Marion and John Stanley Gacy. John, along with his mother and two sisters, were all subjected to verbal and physical abuse at the hands of Gacy's alcoholic father throughout his childhood. Young John was constantly berated by his father, often in front of his sisters or other kids in his neighborhood, being, quote, a sissy mama's boy who would probably grow up queer. When John, at the age of seven, was caught with another boy fondling another young girl, John's father reacted by beating him with a razor strap. This was not an uncommon punishment in the Gacy household. John Stanley Gacy would frequently arrive home from work and immediately head to the basement, only to emerge sometime later completely drunk, often lashing out at young John seemingly out of nowhere. Gacy, nonetheless, was desperate to please his father, which likely resulted in Gacy internalizing his father's homophobia. At around age seven, Gacy was also molested by a family friend, which likely only served to exacerbate Gacy's sexual confusion. At the age of 12, John revealed to a friend a hidden stash of his mother's underwear that he kept in his closet. Gacy was very close with his mother and his sisters, which only seemed to solidify his father's resentment towards him. He also suffered from numerous health problems, and at age 9, Gacy began having fainting spells and was diagnosed with an enlarged bottleneck heart. In 1957, he was hospitalized for a burst appendix. Gacy never did very well academically, but at age 17, began learning the printing trade. However, after several fainting spells during shop class, it was determined that he could no longer be allowed to work with machinery. Discouraged, 
Gacy dropped out of high school and began working as an assistant precinct captain for the local Democratic Party. In 1962, fed up with his father's mistreatment, Gacy left home, eventually ending up as a mortuary attendant in Las Vegas. One evening, while working at the mortuary, he was overcome by an irresistible impulse to climb into a coffin with a dead teenage boy, where he laid next to it, caressing the body until eventually being overcome with shock with what he was doing. Freaked out by the experience, he called home and returned to Chicago shortly after. Then, after graduating from the Northwestern Business College in 1963, he took a job as a shoe salesman about 200 miles south of Chicago in Springfield. Finally on his own, he made a name for himself with the local U.S. Junior Chamber, or the JCs. He climbed the JCs ladder, bringing in large numbers of new recruits through parties he would host featuring drugs, stag films, and prostitutes, eventually becoming vice president. In 1964, he married Marilyn Myers, with whom he had two children, and they eventually moved to Waterloo, Iowa, in order to take over management of three KFCs Marilyn's parents had purchased. Life really seemed to be turning around for Gacy. He had even gained what he had perhaps sought most in his life up to that point, the approval of his father. However, Gacy had developed an insatiable sexual appetite that could not be satisfied by prostitutes, sex parties, or even wife swapping. Gacy had set up a clubhouse in his basement for the employees of his KFC restaurant. But somehow, invitations only seemed to find their way to the teenage males among them whom he would ply with drugs and booze and make sexual advances on, sometimes forcibly. And in August 1967, he coerced the 15-year-old son of a fellow JC to perform oral sex on him. The following year, the traumatized boy finally reported the incident to his parents, who immediately pressed charges. And on November 7th of 1968, Casey was convicted of sodomy and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Casey's wife, Marilyn, filed for divorce, and he never saw her or his two children again. Casey was further devastated by the death of his father while in prison, which he believed to be the result of shame for Casey's sodomy conviction. Nonetheless, Casey was a model prisoner and was paroled on good behavior in June of 1970, having served only 18 months of his 10-year sentence. Casey returned to Chicago to rebuild his life. By all appearances, Gacy wasted no time in finding new teenage boys to assault. In February of 1971, Gacy was charged with sexual battery of a teenage boy, but the charges ended up being dropped when the boy failed to appear in court. That same year, Gacy moved into the infamous 8213 West Summerdale Avenue, which would eventually serve as the burial site of 26 of his victims. He also established his construction business, PDM Contractors, in the following year, he married his second wife, Carol Hoff, a divorcee and mother of two young daughters. However, on January 2nd of 1972, the crawl space under 8213 West Somerdale Avenue received its first human deposit after Gacy stabbed a 16-year-old boy in the chest. Though the stabbing was allegedly in self-defense, Gacy reported that after stabbing the boy, he achieved a mind-numbing orgasm and learned that death was the ultimate thrill. Over the following years, Gacy rebuilt his reputation as a successful businessman and popular local precinct captain of the Chicago Democratic Party, throwing massive backyard parties, often with hundreds of people in attendance. 
He committed his second known murder on January of 1974. And on July 31st, 1975, Gacy convinced one of his employees to come home with him on the pretense of settling a dispute over unpaid wages. After offering 18-year-old John Buktovich a drink, Gacy convinced him in what would become something of a signature move to allow his hands to be cuffed behind his back. Gacy subsequently tormented the boy for some time by sitting on his chest before finally strangling him to death. By 1975, as his second marriage ended in divorce, Gacy had begun regularly cruising the streets of Chicago for young male victims and finding increasingly elaborate ways to torture them. It is clear, however, that Gacy did not always kill his victims. In March of 1978, Gacy kidnapped 26-year-old Jeffrey Rignall, whom he kept suspended in a pillory in his basement for a night of torture and rape before chloroforming him and releasing him half-naked in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Despite the mounting number of disappearances among the employees of his contracting company, it was not until Gacy lured 15-year-old Robert Peace to his home on the pretext of offering him a job that his murder spree would finally come to an end. Gacy convinced him to put handcuffs on under the pretext of a magic trick and then strangled him to death using what Gacy called his rope trick. The rope trick involved a sort of makeshift garrote, which amounted to a rope and a sort of short broom handle that, after twisting several times, would firmly lodge itself behind the victim's back, allowing Gacy to stand back and watch them struggle as they slowly died from strangulation. Peace's parents quickly reported Robert's disappearance, and after tailing Gacy for several weeks, police finally had sufficient evidence to search the crawl space under the house on Somerdale Avenue. Gacy was convicted of 33 accounts of murder and sentenced to death March 18, 1980. Finally, on May 9, 1994, Gacy was executed by lethal injection. preconceived notions I went into researching Gacy with was that I, I tended to think that the clown part of Gacy's story was really much more sensationalized than it was, you know, materially relevant to his personal, we'll say, contribution to the world. But, you know, it was kind of understandably emphasized in coverage of him because it really added this kind of extra layer of creepiness and kind of shock, kind of shock value. But I want to, you know, acknowledge it for the role that it did play. As we'll see as we get into the chart, it might have been a much bigger component of what the life of John Wayne Gacy was all about than maybe I thought at first. Gacy essentially got into clowning uh, around 1975, really around when his murder spree was, was kind of picking up but he had a couple different clown personas, probably the primary one being Pogo the Clown, who, you know, was a very happy, jovial clown in uh, Gacy's words, and then he had another one that was a little more serious. For the most part, you know, that was kind of a separate thing. He did exploit that when he was in prison. He started painting really rather shitty clown paintings and really selling them for quite high prices. But there was one incident where he really, you know, kind of almost did take on 
that Kill Clown role. Around uh, 1976, after his divorce, he was renting a spare bedroom to one of his employees, went by Cram. One day, Cram came home to just a really kind of high and wasted Gacy in just full clown regalia, makeup and everything, and invited Cram to, you know, have a couple drinks with him. And of course, you know, now in his, his clown outfit, what better time to do his handcuff trick? When Cram asked Gacy to uncuff him, Gacy just kind of started laughing like a little kid. And then Cram threatened to kick Gacy's ass. And then Gacy just started growling like a, a mad dog, as Cram put it, and just started swinging him around the room, screaming, I'm going to rape you, giggling in full clown makeup. And I guess Cram managed to knock Gacy down, get the keys, and uncuff himself. And then he just moved out the next day. But that's really the closest that uh, Gacy's clowning, at least kind of literally, and Gacy's more nefarious activities truly overlapped. But, you know, with that said, let's just go over his chart here. So he was born with a Sagittarius rising, about 1 degree, 28 minutes. There are no planets in the first, so really want to look at the ruling planet, obviously. And we get Jupiter in Gemini, in its detriment, in the seventh house. There we also have Mars applying to a conjunction with Jupiter at 5 degrees, 51 minutes. Naturally, we're going to want to look at what Mercury's doing, being the ruling planet of Gemini. And we have Mercury at 0 degrees, 17 minutes in its fall in Pisces, in the fourth house. It's also pretty notable that we have the sun in Pisces in the fourth house, 25 degrees, 59 minutes, and the new moon, also in Pisces, at 28 degrees, 49 minutes. And we have the south node, also in Pisces, in the fourth, hanging out pretty close to the IC at 17 degrees, 54 minutes. Now this gives us a not super strong, but nonetheless, symbolically significant eclipse in Gacy's fourth house, a south node eclipse. So what's going on there is going to have a lot of influence on, I mean, everything else because it's angular, but mainly, you know, Jupiter as well as Mars. There's a mutual reception between Jupiter and Mercury. And then we have Venus in Aquarius at 13 degrees, 36 minutes applying very tightly to a trine with Jupiter in Gemini. Quite a, a typically nice, very lovely little aspect. Generally regarded as one of the most positive aspects. Astrology, Venus, Jupiter, both benefics. And then we also have Saturn in Taurus in Gacy's sixth house at 24 degrees, six minutes, applying to a conjunction with Uranus at 27 degrees, five minutes, Taurus. And then finally we have Neptune up in the 10th house, about 28 degrees, 34 minutes, Virgo in a pretty tight, though just separating opposition with the moon in Pisces. And then we have Pluto in Leo at 3 degrees. And you know, it's not super tightly configured to anything. I mean, it's in the action. It's technically kind of opposing Venus by sign, but I don't think we're going to get to point too many fingers at Pluto. So, you know, overall, just kind of the hot take or, you know, first glance look at, at Gacy's chart. 
it's hard to really see anything really disastrous about it. I mean, there's like some not great stuff, but you know, just kind of at a broad glance doesn't look too bad. Especially that really, you know, should be a very lovely Venus Jupiter trine, especially to the ruler of the first house. But, you know, one of the things that kind of occurred to me with Venus and Aquarius and that relationship with Jupiter was the uh, kind of the story of Ganymede in Greek mythology, which is a pretty significant element of what Aquarius is all about. Aquarius is identified by the constellation of the water bearer. And the story I've always known about Ganymede is that he was this kind of young, very gifted, sort of golden boy prince of Troy. And Jupiter, or Zeus, you know, the god of all gods, was like, hey, other gods, look at this guy. Now that mortal is something special. What do you guys think uh, I make him my cupbearer? Everybody's like, yeah, Jupiter, that sounds like a good idea. He's pretty cool. So Jupiter sends for an eagle to fly down and whisk this prince of princes and bring him up to Olympus. And while it's great, you know, getting this special status as Zeus's cupbearer, it's kind of a special place of honor, he's still immortal. You know, he's a, he's a mortal amongst gods, kind of risen above his fellow man to this high place but there's kind of a, a tragedy in occupying this kind of sacred role as cupbearer. He kind of has to live in a sort of isolation, a sort of in-between space, a kind of exile, an honorable exile, if you will, belonging neither to the gods nor to mortals. And you get a lot of Aquarius themes there, sort of surrendering of the self to a higher purpose for the greater good. You get a little bit of a holier-than-thou vibe too, you know. It's lonely here at the top. But it got me thinking, you know, we somehow Gacy's chart was just like the darkest version of that story you could possibly dream up. Gacy being Jupiter with a fondness for kind of bringing in handsome young boys. Like, hey there guy, I've seen you, I've seen you working. You're a hard worker. How would you like to make five bucks an hour? Which was like twice as much as what the minimum wage was at the time. And most of them would be like, golly, sir, sure, of course. And, you know, Gacy would bring them in, make them feel special. And, you know, instead of making them his cupbearer, he drowned them in the tub and raped them. Now, as I did a little more research on that story, turns out there is actually a very, very dark version of that story already. And this other version, often referred to as the Rape of Ganymede, Zeus is hanging out up in Olympus, and he sees this beautiful, handsome young boy prince. And Zeus, being both lustful and a god of varied tastes, gets just hard as the dickens over Ganymede. It says, I gotta have him. It's gotta be mine. So he turns himself into an eagle and swoops down, whisks the handsome young boy away up to Olympus, castrates Ganymede and makes him his personal boy love doll. And you know, it's a technically kind of honored position to be so beloved by the gods that one of them just can't help but kidnap you and make you his own personal sex slave. It, you know, kind of sucks for maybe more obvious reasons. But so it goes for our tragic hero Ganymede.
Now, I don't know about you, but from my perspective, that symbolism is kind of hard to ignore. That Venus in Aquarius is starting to look a lot like a nice, sweet, teenage Ganymede, and that Jupiter in Gemini, ruling Gacy's first house, is looking a lot like a big, bad, dirty Zeus. But how? Why? Why is that trine so nasty? Why is Jupiter so bad? Why is why is it that we're getting like an evil Jupiter? I mean, it's Jupiter. It's a benefic, right? Usually has to be in pretty bad condition to become kind of genuinely malefic. But, you know, let's go ahead and see what's up with Jupiter. Jupiter's in, in Gemini. It's, uh, you know, it's in a detriment. And, you know, a lot of the time when you get the uh, ruler of the first in the seventh, one of the more common uh, manifestations of that is, you know, maybe getting a little overly involved in romantic relationships, losing yourself in relationships, but often kind of discovering yourself through them as well. And while, you know, you might see a little bit of that with Gacy to some degree, kind of more in a broadly social kind of context. You know, Venus is in the third. It's a very social house. Gacy was an extremely social guy. And, you know, really the issue with Jupiter and Gemini, you know, on the positive side, uh, people with Jupiter and Gemini can, you know, sometimes be just really vast repositories of data, facts, you know. Be interested to see how many Jeopardy contestants have Jupiter and Gemini. And it's not really, you know, Jupiter's favorite thing. Jupiter's more of the, you know, Jupiter speaks in metaphors. Jupiter's looking for kind of the broader context of, of things. Kind of a big picture guy. Jupiter likes it, kind of big, kind of grandiose. Likes to foster growth, right? Gemini, you know, is kind of archetypally Mercury in Gemini, but, you know, planets in Gemini take on the quality of Gemini. And it's just like a, a curiosity. Gemini likes the details. It wants to, you know, Gemini wants to know the how and the why and the when and the where. And, you know, both of them, or all three of them, or all seven of them at the same time. It's a little more impulsive. And Gemini likes, you know, tricks, too. Kind of likes to find shortcuts. Gemini is interested in all the ways of doing things. It's interested in technique. Likes to be clever. Gemini planets are going to tend to be geared towards finding the most interesting way to do something. But what's interesting can change quite a lot from moment to moment. Well, Jupiter maybe just wants to know the, the correct way, the right way, the morally correct way. Mercury kind of essentially not a planet that really deals in morality. It can. It's quite adaptable, you know. It'll adapt to its moral environment in a pretty kind of pragmatic way. That's why Mercury, you know, doesn't really have uh, a sect. It's flexible. It's androgynous. It sort of shifts and changes and moves and alters itself to more or less do business, you know, in the environment it's in. Whether that environment is, you know, a nunnery or a basement full of baby-eating cannibals. And Gemini is definitely the more, uh, I want to think of a better word than amoral, but, you know, it's just not really judging or looking at things through a moral lens. That's why Gemini, in my personal opinion, has kind of the creepiest dark side. Kind of think of that movie Funny Games. You may or may not have seen it. I couldn't really finish it, which, you know, might be saying something. But it basically has, you know, these two uh, Gemini young men just having a delightful time horrifically torturing this family and just playing really fucked up mind games with them. Or, you know, maybe more well-known example, sometimes think of Alex from Clockwork Orange. Just kind of singing, singing in the rain, 
kind of gleefully bashing a woman to death with a penis statue in front of her husband. That's like his idea of a good time. It's not a very emotional sign. It might like to play with your emotions. But, you know, other than being in its, in its detriment, what else? That's really not enough to get our kind of kidnappy, rapey Zeus, even though, you know, mythology is a much bigger part of what Zeus did than maybe what Jupiter, the planet, tends to signify. But Jupiter is out of sect. This is a night chart. So, you know, it's in a sense not as powerful, but, you know, it's just not as happy. It's a little more grumpy. You know, his favorite shows aren't on. Put too much salt on everything. Just kind of indicates that Jupiter, or, you know, maybe the person in question is not as, uh, you know, often it's really just, they're just not as mainstream. You can really think about it as, you know, if you're a senator and say you're, you know, a Democrat, but, you know, Republicans have the majority and really the best you're going to do is get, you know, Senate minority leader. You're not going to be the one running the show. It's going to make your pond a little smaller. So, you know, Jupiter's out of sect kind of just by the nature of the chart, but it's also out of sect in terms of its relationship with the sun. So you have the sun below the horizon, which is, you know, by definition what makes it a night chart, but Jupiter is above the horizon. It's not with the sun. If it's got to be in a night chart, at least wants to be with its homies, sun and even Saturn wants to be on with its teammates. And it's not. It's with Mars. Now, you know, in the right situations, it can be kind of good. Especially if Jupiter has the upper hand uh, in the relationship. Usually be a really good influence on Mars. And, you know, technically Jupiter is kind of in the technically stronger position of the conjunction. So Mars is applying to Jupiter. Which you can kind of think if, you know, you're negotiating a business meeting and you maybe want to swing your dick around a little bit, you might want them to, you know, come to your office and meet with you. So, you, you know, meet on your own terms. And that's kind of what that's like. The slower-moving planet tends to have more of the big dick energy. <laughs> and, you know, they also tend to be just physically bigger than the faster-moving planets like, you know, Mars, Venus, Mercury, the Moon. But that's going to depend on a lot of other factors. Like, for one, you know, Mars is of the sect in favor. It's a night planet and a night chart. And, you know, while Mars has that going for it, which is definitely something, otherwise it has kind of some of the same problems that Jupiter has. It's not on its detriment, but... It's not a sign that it does particularly well in, I mean, it can in, in certain circumstances, of course. But, you know, Mars in, in general doesn't do great with air. You ever tried throwing punches at air? You can't. In fact, if you do it too much, you're going to throw your, your shit out of whack. Mars needs, like, some substance to kind of push forward or, or push around. <laughs> you know, it wants some meat to drive its sword into, if you will. But it's not a, a planet naturally suited to kind of mind intellectual sphere that the element of air is associated with. Mars in, in air science tends to indicate kind of hyper mental activity and overheating of the mind. A bit of a spinning spinning of the, the wheels, but not really finding traction or road for, for them to really get you going forward. But also like Jupiter, Mars is kind of out of sect by um, its relationship to its sect luminary, the moon. The moon, you know, also would rather be above the horizon. You know, it doesn't want to be on the same side of the horizon as the sun. Sun and moon, you know, they're, they're friendly in general, but, you know, they kind of have their own domains they want to be operating in. They don't want to rub shoulders too much, too many cooks in the kitchen. So Mars and Jupiter are both kind of without their respective 
monarchs or leaders and really kind of to some degree symbolically without either of them. So, you know, they're going to lean a little more bummed, a little more, eh, you know, a little more grumpy, a little less benefic. But they're kind of, you know, smaller components of the overall picture. And really you want to see, you know, what the, the ruling planet is doing. And you got, you got Mercury ruling Gemini. And, you know, Mercury's in its fall. It's detriment in Pisces. Personally, I'm kind of fond of Mercury in Pisces. Often gives a very expressive, imaginative communication style but one that's not very precise. Kind of have to be patient with Mercury and Pisces because it's not very uh, straightforward in its communication or, or very naturally inclined to, to logic. It's a bit more emotive. I kind of liked what uh, Robert Hand said at one point about Mercury and Pisces. By medieval standards, no planet is more essentially debilitated in any sign than Mercury is in Pisces because Mercury is both in its domicile and exaltation in Virgo. It's technically both in its detriment and fall. Now, you know, I think it's a little melodramatic. I would say its struggles are about on par with other planets in the sign of their fall or detriment. But he said that Mercury in Pisces is good at a lot of things. But being Mercury is not one of them. However, you know, with Jupiter in Gemini, we got a mutual reception. Now, mutual receptions are usually helpful. Traditionally, they were said to cancel out any difficulties or challenges associated with a planet lacking uh, dignity where it is in some way. But in practice, I mean, you tend to get both in this case. You kind of get both the challenges and the difficulties and the strengths as well. Gacy was quite good at a lot of mercurial things. Very organized, meticulous record keeper. But the logic uh, wasn't always super straightforward. When he was uh, arrested, after they started pulling bodies up from under his house, the cops asked him what the location of his birth was. And Gacy said, I was born in a state of confusion. He was rather pleased with himself, with his kind of clever little play on words, but quite uh, appropriate given his first house ruler being in the seventh. Going to have some uh, identity confusion there. Then Mercury, you know, in its fall... It's in the fourth, it's with the south node. It's also this kind of fresh and covered in afterbirth sort of Mercury. Like just, just got in to the sign. Just being with the nodes is going to add, you know, a little confusion. And then, you know, his sun is being eclipsed. So, you know, with that mutual reception, it's, it's help, helpful. He was not ineffective at all at the things he did. <laughs> Actually, an extremely busy and energetic dude. But, you know, that Jupiter and Gemini, Mercury and Pisces, mutual reception, it, it's a bit much. It's a bit over the top, especially with that Venus trying Jupiter, Venus in the third. Even if he wasn't a serial killer, I personally wouldn't want to get caught in an elevator with him. <laughs> Definitely the type to start chatting up anybody and anywhere about anything. And he was, you know, pretty unanimously described as just a gold star blowhard constantly bragging about all the people he knew, all these connections that he had, really wanted to be this well-connected guy. And he was to some degree, but he shamelessly exaggerated his connections. He liked to claim that he had connections to the, the mafia whenever somebody pissed him off. So, I mean, you get Jupiter being Jupiter and Mercury being Mercury, just not always the best version of themselves. Mercury is 
out of sect by phase. It's uh, rising before the sun, which tends to be a little more of a Mercury and Gemini quality, a little bit of a more of a chatty Cathy vibe. Evening star Mercury, a little more associated with Mercury and Virgo. It's a little more deliberate and considered with its thinking process and its kind of style of communication. But, you know, really, and this could be kind of up for debate given the sort of sign boundary involved, but Mercury is separating from a square from Saturn, an out-of-sign square, about six or so degrees, and applying to a square with Mars, about five or so degrees. So this kind of looks like Mercury is besieged by malefics. And, you know, Mercury being ever willing to adapt to its circumstances is going to take on some malefic qualities, arguably quite a few. So, I mean, it's not really uh, adding necessarily kind of positive, well-intentioned significations to, you know, what Jupiter and Mars are doing. And, you know, with that mutual reception with Jupiter and Mercury, they're kind of a package deal. Kind of like to think of mutual receptions being like a Jay and Silent Bob sort of combination, where... If you invite one to the party, you know the other one's going to be coming too. It's just kind of implied. <laughs> goes without saying. Sort of this kind of codependent relationship, which can be very productive, but the they come as kind of a unit. So whatever's going on with one is going to be kind of going on with the other. So overall, I mean, it, it sort of looks like Jupiter's holding a knife, or, you know, in this case, a rope and some handcuffs. And, you know, Mars being with Jupiter, Mars, you know, rules Gacy's fifth house. So Mars likes to fuck, and it also rules the 12th. So it kind of has that job of kind of working against Gacy to some degree, or sort of undoing the self, which doesn't always have to be negative, but I think it's kind of negative, especially when it's applying to the first house ruler. So, I mean, you know, Jupiter's kind of stabilizing and saying yes to, to Mars, and Gacy liked to fuck. He liked to fuck a lot. It's kind of big, goofy, puffy, sleazy hornball. Mars, the fifth house ruler, is getting a lot of extra juice from Jupiter. Juice in part brewed by a besieged Mercury hanging out with a south node eclipse. And obviously, you know, that took on a increasingly malevolent and dark tone. But, you know, what about Venus? Venus is in that overcoming trine with Jupiter, and it's, you know, kind of not quite an orb maybe with Mars, but, you know, by sign, it's bonifying both of them. It's a bonifying condition, at least in theory. It should be making Jupiter and Mars good. That's what bonifying means. But let's assess the condition of Venus. Venus is in Aquarius in the third house in about 13 degrees. It is the benefic of the sect in favor, so that's going to make it, you know, pretty strong, or at least generally more capable of expressing itself. But, you know, okay, it's in Aquarius. Not, you know, a bad sign for Venus. Not really good or bad, inherently. I'd say Venus generally has quite a bit to work with in the sign of Aquarius. It's a little less warm, a little more impersonal. While they tend to be very social, often having, you know, a a large group of friends, they don't tend to, you know, have as many close friends. It's not as uh, much inclined to developing intimacy. This could look a bit like a, you know, like a free love kind of Venus, sort of equal opportunity sexuality. And I mean, that doesn't exactly miss the mark with Casey. You know, he liked having sex with lots of different partners. Him and his first wife, they liked to swing a bit, the little wife swapping. And, you know, definitely gives Venus a kind of a social awareness, sort of sense of tact. 
political correctness. Not that Gacy always practiced that publicly, but he was very much aware of what the boundaries were and knew exactly how to navigate along them and around them and through them. I mean, he was able to convince people that he had maybe just picked up off the street to trust him enough to let him handcuff them. So definitely granting Gacy a lot of social capacity, capability, and skill. He was a very effective schmoozer. But how benefic is, is Venus in this chart? And, you know, like I said, it's of the sect. That's good. And it's, a, you know, a diurnal sign. It's an air sign. So a little less benefic in the strictest sense of the term. It's also a morning rising Venus, which, you know, is definitely going to uh, make Venus more expressive, more outgoing, a little more attention-seeking. But, you know, it's not in a night chart, not as great. It's sort of acting kind of out of step with its environment a bit. <laughs> in this case, uh, quite a bit. And, you know, it's in the third house, which by most modern astrologers, myself included, don't see the third house as a negative house at all. It's, you know, it's a nice house. It's uh, maybe not the most exciting house in the world, but it doesn't deal with or inherently negative topics. But it does have that um, quality that all cadent houses have. There's just a lot to do. The planets there are busy. They're kind of like minutiae houses. It's not necessarily the kind of busy that is incredibly productive all the time. Cadent houses tend to deal with more of the, the maintenance, the daily maintenance, the sort of uh, entropy management houses. And ancient astrologers took a more negative view of the third house, not really topically as much, but just, you know, plants there were, you kind of think that they're just, they're preoccupied. They're kind of swamped with shit to do. But it was, in a technical sense, bad aspects from bad planets were capable of maltreating from the third house. And while I don't think that that distinction regarding maltreatment is irrelevant at all, you can see some really malefic shit coming from good houses. But we can probably say that Venus is not flush with kind of surplus beneficence to dole out in the third. But now these are all just kind of twigs. I think the real log on the fire here is Saturn. Venus is ruled by Saturn, which is out of sect. It's the out of sect malefic. And it's in a traditionally bad house. It's in the sixth. Now, this alone was considered a form of maltreatment. You know, the planet where it's placed is kind of like where things start often, and the ruling planet is kind of the outcome, where, where it ends, where it goes. So what's up with Saturn? Saturn is, like I said, in the sixth. It's at about 24 degrees of Taurus, applying to that conjunction with Uranus. Saturn's out of sect. It's in a bad house. It's in a nocturnal, you know, Earth sign. Saturn prefers diurnal signs, air or fire, particularly air. So, you know, the constraining, restrictive, sort of drawing in qualities of Saturn are being emphasized and made more malefic by its presence in the sixth house. And I would say, you know, not that the conjunction with Uranus is irrelevant, but Uranus is not as capable of creating the sort of sudden change in volatility that it likes to, both in Taurus and, you know, in a night chart. The sort of coolness of the night, sort of drawing together, settling of things, puts a little bit of a limit on Uranus's power. And Taurus, it's a sign of fixed Earth. So, you know, maybe the least prone to change of all the signs, at least not sudden radical change. I always like to think of a, a herd of cows with Taurus, or a herd of buffalo if you want to make it a little more majestic. But those herds are huge, and they're just kind of there, grazing, and kind of in a natural setting. They might move. They will move. 
but kind of slowly, it'll kind of meander to the degree that you may not actually notice them really moving until all of a sudden they're not there anymore. So I would say that, you know, Uranus is not as uh, radicalizing as it might be otherwise. However, I think it points to a kind of slow building of tension that when it, when it does hit a sort of critical mass, how does uh, fixed Earth change? Either, you know, by the slow movement of tectonic plates or by volcanic eruptions. So, you know, I don't necessarily love that conjunction in Gacy's sixth, especially not ruling Venus, kind of really counteracting what would otherwise be a, a pretty nice Venus. Now, in theory, Venus is in the overcoming sign-based square with Saturn. There's this mutual reception there. So, I mean, Venus should really kind of be able to bonify Saturn to some degree, and the tension of a typical Saturn-Venus, even sign-based square, should really be tamped down. And really, I'd probably like it a lot more if the reception wasn't mutual in this case. Because, you know, similar to Mercury and Jupiter, they kind of come as a package deal. And, you know, even Venus technically having the upper hand, which does seem to, in practice, have the effect of lessening the difficulty of Saturn, at least as far as Gacy's concerned, them kind of swapping significations back and forth. I think it kind of looks like the way it showed up for Gacy. Over time, Gacy's repressed sexuality really took on darker and darker tones until he finally snapped and stabbed someone and came all over the inside of his pants. And, you know, that's kind of how it played out. But, you know, even just looking at it, I still feel like, you know, Venus should kind of have the upper hand. It shouldn't have gotten that bad. Maybe not super great, but not as bad as it got. Now, some ancient texts refer to Taurus as being a commanding sign and Aquarius as obeying, them having that kind of antitial relationship, being signs of equal rising time, and Taurus being on like the lighter the lighter half of the, the zodiac. It's argued by some ancient astrologers that Taurus sort of had a kind of upper hand. And I think in practice, you know, Taurus is able to, there's a little bit more of a standoff. They can kind of look a little more like negotiation or cooperation between the two. Sometimes squares between those signs can be either kind of extra standoffish or a little more manageable, especially over time. But, you know, that could be debated. But I think uh, Saturn has a kind of ace in the hole that maybe tips the scale in terms of adding to the overall malevolence involved in this pair, of Venus and Saturn. And that is that Saturn is applying to a conjunction with the fixed star, Algol. Demon star Algol is actually not one star, but three. It's a triple star system that eclipses itself in 2.85 day cycles. Ancient Egyptian, called Hour Watchers, as early as about 1200 BCE, observed Algol's phases and tied them to the behavior of the gods, specifically Horus. They sort of saw Algol as like the eye of Horus. It was kind of a big deal in the Egyptian pantheon, and they really focused on uh, the phases of Algol and the moon. Basically, when both were bright, it's an indicator of good times, but when both were dark, not so good. Eventually, 
Algol became associated with the constellation of Perseus and represented the winking eye of Medusa's head. Medusa's decapitated head and being held by the triumphant Perseus. But it's really in the story of Medusa that we see where a lot of the themes and topics that get associated with Algol come from. Medusa was, in myth, once a beautiful and a devout high priestess. But after the god Poseidon came down and raped her, Athena, Poseidon's wife, punished her for being such a homewrecker, you know, and turned her into an ugly old gorgon with snakes for hair and cursed to turn anyone she looked at into stone. And, you know, what better way to kind of top off the villainization of a rape victim than to turn her into this horrible monster for a, you know, big sturdy hero like Perseus to come in and build his legend by venturing into Medusa's dark underground lair, which is basically a graveyard of petrified statues, huh? and, you know, cutting her head off. That's kind of how uh, Algol gets associated with decapitation and more broadly injuries to the neck, throat, torus, as well as strangulation and hanging. And there are themes of unrestrained feminine sexuality and the repression of feminine sexuality and feminine authority, powerful female figures. And, you know, for thousands of years, people across cultures looked up at Algol with fear. This kind of winking star fading in and out of existence and I think this really speaks to the fear that, you know, men have had throughout human history of the power of, you know, women's sexuality. Culture is really sprinkled with subtle and overt sort of carrots and sticks designed to control female sexuality in both men and women. And when you take it apart, it can kind of look like a kind of womb envy, maybe. You know, when you think of the an extreme end of archetypally male sexuality. It's really the expression of dominance. It's penetrative, oppressive, conquering, very kind of ego-driven, perhaps more Mars-like in nature. While the kind of extreme end of archetypally female sexuality is more possessive, enveloping, there's kind of a loss of control, a surrendering and a, a merging. That is, you know, both kind of longed for in some existential way, but also deeply threatening to the ego. It's a little bit like Saturn. And that's why, to the degree that you can really categorize the character of the planets in strictly feminine or masculine terms, I think there's a strong argument for Saturn being essentially feminine in nature. Now, Gacy, I think it's pretty obvious that he was frightened of his own sexuality. You know, whenever he was trying to come on to young boys, he would uh, tell the story of this one time when he was out with a male friend of his, going out picking up chicks. And his friend said to him, you know, you have uh, about a 50% chance of getting laid tonight, but I have a 100% chance. And Gacy said, hmm, how is that? And the friend says, if I can't find a woman to have sex with, I can always find a dude. And, you know, if you close your eyes, you really can't tell the difference. After all, it's not really gay if you're thinking about a woman while you're doing it, right? And Gacy, you know, always insisted that he was not homosexual, and not that I would even argue that he was. It's kind of irrelevant, but what's relevant is that he really seemed to be afraid of that designation, 
after his second marriage, he would just kind of always insist that he was bisexual with a strong preference for women, always with that emphasis. But, you know, a hole is a hole, right? When you hear him talk, I always say, you know, I'm not a fag. I'm not a, I'm not a fruit picker, which, you know, his dad just constantly accused him of. I find it interesting that uh, the ruler of Gacy's first house is also the ruler of his fourth. And this could kind of be a su- suggestion that, you know, maybe he has a lot in common with his father. And I think his father's kind of pervasive homophobia, alcoholism, violence towards his family could be an indication uh, that he was maybe projecting his own, you know, repressed sexuality on Gacy. I mean, the dude insisted on naming his son John Wayne, for Christ's sake. I mean, come on. (laughs) Could just be speculating there. But, you know, when Gacy was in prison for sodomy the first time, and he was informed of his father's death, he kind of immediately got off the phone and the story is he saw, you know, two dudes kind of blowing each other in prison and um, just started kicking them. And people that knew him kind of referenced a change in character. And he often made kind of derogatory remarks about his victims being, you know, fags. You know, I gave them what they wanted. He always really kind of emphasized the transactional kind of quality of his sexual relationships with men. You know, he really didn't want anyone thinking he was, you know, emotionally involved with any of these men. And, you know, he also really emphasized that he never went after straight men. All his victims were gay. Like, that made it a little more okay in some way. But, I mean, when you just consider the nature of his crimes, the way that he just tortured the shit out of his victims, he really, really liked the torture. He liked to drag it out. And, you know, a lot of the torture was very sexual in nature. When they were searching his house after finding the bodies... They found, like, multiple feet-long dildos covered in blood. And Gacy, you know, really had a, a thing with strangulation. That was how nearly all of his victims died. And I think that's where you can really see Saturn and Al Gol and Taurus really altering the character of Venus. As far as I know, the only victim of his that died by anything other than strangulation or or asphyxiation of some kind was his first victim, which was very much unplanned. Early on, he became fond of shoving the victim's underwear down their throats, both choking them and causing them to gag and essentially drown in their own vomit. I mean, it's really fucking twisted. It just really speaks to the, the level of hate that Gacy had that, you know, pretty obviously from a psychological standpoint was uh, an externalization of the hate and fear that he had or his own sexuality. I mean, that's one of the many things we'll come up to with uh, the ruler of the first and the seventh. Strong tendency towards projection, ultimately due to unease or, uh, you know, an otherizing of the self. Gacy Saturn uh, being in the sixth house. Interestingly, you know, the six shows up as employees who made up kind of the bulk of his victims. But, you know, it's also traditionally a house of enemies, that which works at, you know, cross purposes to the first house. And that mutual reception with Venus and Saturn really looks like this back and forth where Venus is saying yes, Saturn is saying no. No, it's bad. Yes, it's good. Till eventually it becomes so conflated that looks like, you know, what it looked like. So, you know, what Venus is delivering to Jupiter and Mars probably feels good through a trine, but that doesn't mean it is good. I do want to talk a bit about uh, what 
has been a very infuriating element of, of Gacy's chart. And that's that uh, very cuspy Sagittarius ascendant at one degree, 28 minutes, which inevitably kind of raises a question as to whether, you know, maybe he was a Scorpio rising. I mean, we have a pretty specific birth time, 1229 a.m. So it doesn't give the appearance that could have been rounded down or rounded up in any way. But it's not at all uncommon, particularly in, say, the 40s, for them not to get around to marking down the birth time for maybe 10, 20 minutes. And if you take his birth time back just about 10 minutes, you get a Scorpio rising chart. And you definitely get very similar themes. In some ways, it, it fits a little better. In some ways, not. That makes Mars the ruler of the first, and it's in the eighth. And the eighth house is like a dark house. Mars in the eighth can be pretty angry, uh, kind of paranoid, uncertain. And hey, you know, it's the house of death, right? And it's applying to Jupiter, so could easily take on a lot of Jupiter qualities. And, you know, the eighth house gets associated with kind of criminal activities, things done in the dark. And you also get themes of the person in question <clears throat> with the ruler of the first in the eighth or another dark house even, like the, the 12th or the 6th, maybe not seeing themselves quite clearly. And then that puts uh, Venus in his fourth house. And in some ways that looks kind of better. It's being ruled by Saturn, conjunct Al goal, and, you know, out of sect in the 7th. So signifying something difficult about the way this person relates to others, but also, you know, one of the parents being a very harsh or negative influence. And conjunct Al goal, you know, one of the other things associated with Al goal is uh, addiction alcoholism and who was Gacy's dad a mean repressive drunk but you know you also have Venus there in the fourth and you know he got along really well with his mom but that also shows up in the sad rising chart Venus in the third got along really well with the siblings and the third is also has some strong symbolic resonance with the mother being the house where the moon rejoices the house of goddess but, you know, with Scorpio rising, Saturn in the seventh makes some sense, too. In some ways, a little more, given his kind of marriage pattern, which, you know, seemed to kind of go well at first and then quickly fell apart due to either Gacy being caught for diddling young boys or just losing interest due to being more and more interested in raping and murdering young boys, which fits. Kind of ending up in Venus in the fourth is like a house of known secrets. And you can even kind of see Saturn strangling those handsome young Venus and Aquariuses and burying them where? Under his house in the fourth. But in the Sag rising chart, you get that eclipsed sun and moon in Pisces, a sign that does have on its negative side associations with alcoholism, drug addiction, escapism. The south node also often comes with things like that. Also abusive relationships being indicated, uh, not at all uncommon. You know, a sun-south node eclipse in the fourth could definitely look like an abusive, alcoholic father. But, you know, you could put that in his fifth house. Sexuality, what do you like to do for fun? It also makes Jupiter the ruler of his fifth, and Mars applying to conjunction with it. I mean, you get very uh, kind of similar story. And I think what maybe ends up making me favor Sagittarius rising chart, one, because it's just a slippery slope when you start questioning the birth time. To some degree, you have to kind of go with what, what's given, especially if it makes sense. But the Scorpio rising, you get that eclipse sun ruling his 10th, which is not undescriptive. One of the early books that came out about Gacy was a book called Buried Dreams. 
think is a title very evocative of both what that Pisces South Node eclipse looks like in the fourth, but also in the fifth, ruling the tenth. Sun ruling, you know, Leo, which would be the tenth house. However, with Sagittarius rising, you get Virgo on the tenth house with Mercury ruling. And Mercury, it's in Pisces, and its detriment or fall, and besieged by malefics and applying to a conjunction with the fixed star Fomahult. Fomahult is one of the royal fixed stars. Ptolemy said that Fomahult was of the nature of Venus and Mercury, idealistic, psychic, handsome, neat, lovable, refined, genteel, and intelligent, said to be very fortunate and powerful, and yet to cause malevolence of sublime scope and character, and change from a material to a spiritual form of expression. Now, you know, Fomahult also had this kind of association with... Uh, magic magicians, gifted storytellers, clowns, and Mercury applying to a square with Mars that rules and coming off a square from Saturn. This kind of besieged by malefics, Mercury applying to a conjunction to Fomahalt really looks a lot like a killer clown. Just about every news broadcast on the Gacy story began with a reference to Gacy's role as a clown, much more so than, you know, his prominence as a local political figure, which he was, you know, much better known for at the time, but not what he ended up being known for. And, you know, Mercury's in the fourth doing secret activities with that kind of pile of lost souls signified by that South Node eclipse. And a lot of practicing clowns noted when pictures of Gacy and his clown makeup came out that Gacy's makeup was very sharp, used a lot of angles in his makeup, which was very unlikely to be an accident. It's kind of a big no-no, makes the clowns look scary. Clowns know that, they use nice round shapes around the mouth and the eyes. Gacy used very distinctly sharp edges. When the police were tailing him, Gacy became very aware of it and... Naturally, you know, started chatting up the cops, took him out to dinner. The cops even, you know, kind of liked him. But, you know, he did a really good job of putting his foot in his mouth. <laughs> One of the things he said was, uh, clowns can get away with murder. If you're dressed as a clown, you could walk right up to a woman and start grabbing her titties. And they won't do anything. They'll giggle. And Gacy sharing this with the cops, thinking the, that it's cool. You know, he clearly was aware of that role that a clown plays. In interviews, he said he liked it. He said he was freeing for him, allowed him to kind of act like a child. But he clearly had no sense of the sort of sanctity that a lot of actual clown enthusiasts have for clowns being this kind of sacred figure. There's a trust involved. Clowns are supposed to be, you know, very innocent, kind of just nakedly expressive and childlike. It makes you feel safe to act in kind around them. It also makes you more receptive to seeing the absurdity of all of the social expectations that really keep people from being themselves. And you'll see clown-like figures all throughout cultures and society and history, and they have this role of kind of flouting the norms and poking fun at what are often people's most deeply held beliefs. And it's like a release for people. People need to be able to do that, need to take a break from taking life so seriously. When you get a guy like Gacy, who is very much betraying that sort of sacred trust, it unsettles people, which is why it was so emphasized in the publication of Gacy in the news. 
And, you know, his arrest really marked what became a, a big shift in people's attitudes towards, towards clowns. And there were always people that were afraid of him, but now it's, it's common. You know, not long after that, Stephen King wrote the book It. Now, it would certainly make sense to me if that killer clown Mercury were ruling Gacy's 10th house. Especially with Neptune and Virgo there opposing the moon. Neptune didn't do too great in Virgo, you know, during the, the Dust Bowl. Or during the Great Depression, 1938 to 1942, a lot of disappointment, a lot of disillusionment. A lot of the big dreaming going on during that time was pretty bleak, pretty scary, pretty cold-blooded. Think of the Third Reich, maybe, as an example. Opposing the moon, it's kind of uh, something about shattering dreams, or perhaps vaporizing them, turning them to dust. Perhaps we will get more definitive answers regarding Gacy's rising sign when we apply some timing techniques in John Wayne Gacy Part 2. For now, I'd like to take the opportunity to say thank you to everyone for listening and invite you to join the very recently opened Killer Cosmos forum on Facebook, where I will be more than happy to answer any questions. And, you know, obviously I love talking about this stuff, so I'd love to hear your ideas about Gacy's chart or any other infamous figure from true crime history. Now it's just opened, so there's nobody in it yet. So as a little incentive to help get the discussion going, the first five listeners to join the group and post a comment will be entered into a drawing for a free natal chart consultation with myself. And if you like the show, I'd love it if you left a review or just shared it with a friend. And I want to give a special thank you to Lionel Casillo, for allowing me to use his song I Saw a Ghost last night in the intro. I am also happy to announce that I am now open for live consultations. And if you're interested, you can schedule one through my website, kylepierceastrology.com. Thank you all again for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you next time for John Wayne Gacy Part 2.